scripture reading this morning is from Ezekiel 39, verses 21 through 29. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward, and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the land of their adversaries. And they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. This is the very word of God. Well, the past two weeks, as we've studied Ezekiel 37... We've noted the significance of that ancient prophecy for us in our day. Speaking to Jewish exiles in Babylon, the God of Israel promised to bring them back, restoring them to their land. This would be no small feat, and God used an image of something like a resurrection from the dead to indicate that he would fulfill this prophecy regardless of the seeming impossibility of the situation. And the against-all-odds nature of the prophecy's fulfillment is seen in the fact that God promised not only to put things back the way they were before the exile, he would put things back they were the way they were 400 years before that. When Israel was united as one nation under the rule of their greatest king, King David. And what's more, God promised that on that day that he brought about the fulfillment of this prophecy, it would be in his inaugurating with his people a covenant of peace, uh, an everlasting covenant, Ezekiel 37, 26 says. A covenant that would never be broken again. From one generation to the next, we see at the end of Ezekiel 37, God promised that he would then make his dwelling among his people. His sanctuary, he said, would be in their midst forevermore. Now, if you put yourself in the place of those who heard this prophecy you might say, that sounds like heaven. It sounds like paradise. And if that's the way that you would hear that prophecy, well, then you've gotten the message. And the New Testament argument, the Christian argument, 
is that all of this, Ezekiel 37, the last two weeks we've been arguing, all of this is what Jesus fulfilled in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That covenant of peace, the inauguration of this everlasting covenant has been achieved. That's the day in which we live. But even if that is so, even if Jesus did bring about the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 in in a surprising but true way, even if that's so, as we look back now from our place in history on two millennia of Christian history, we can see that we're not quite to the heaven on earth hope that we envision. That's why many Christians have difficulty believing that prophecies like the ones that we've looked at the last two weeks in Ezekiel 37 have been fulfilled. How can we believe that the long-awaited kingdom of God has come when there remains so much sorrow and trouble, so much pain and and suffering, so much struggle, so much evil remaining in the world today? Why would that be? So we're invited this morning to keep on reading in Ezekiel's prophecy. Here we come now to Ezekiel 38 and 39, and we find in a very interesting phrase in these two chapters that occurs uh, once in each of the two chapters. Ezekiel 38, 16 and Ezekiel 39, 27 speak of God saying his plan in all of this, is to vindicate his holiness. Uh, He used that same phrase back in chapter 36 as well, where the necessity of God saving his people is explained. Uh, If you remember, what we saw then is that if God does not save his people, doesn't bring them back out of exile, then his own name will be profaned among the nations. Try to get your minds around this. If God simply punished his people for their sins, if he simply brought down his wrath against sinners, and that's it, the last taste in everyone's mouth would be that this God, as great as he may be in creating the world, seems to be defenseless against the sin that has corrupted his people and his world. If judgment is the final word, God's name is profaned, is blasphemed among the nations. And that's not true. It's not true that God is defenseless against the sin that has corrupted his people and his world. So God made this promise to restore his people. Why? In order to vindicate his holiness. But now, this is where Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes us. Even after God has vindicated his holiness by restoring his people, he doesn't stop there. He cannot stop there. The inauguration of this covenant of peace is simply not yet the end of all of his saving work. His holiness is not yet fully vindicated. Why? What is left to be done? At the end of chapter 37, why do we have another chapter? These are the important questions, not only for studying the book of Ezekiel, but for you and me living on this side of the Messiah's coming. Uh, If 
Indeed, chapter 37 is fulfilled in the arrival and the work, the achievement of Jesus of Nazareth, then what can we learn from chapters 38 and 39? What in the world is God doing today? The arrival of God's kingdom on earth has stirred up evil so that it can be identified and eradicated from his kingdom forever. The arrival of the kingdom of God 2,000 years ago has agitated, stirred up evil so that it can be identified and then eradicated from God's kingdom forever. So first, the arrival of God's kingdom on earth, foretold in Ezekiel 37, fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, this promise that God made to restore his people, unite them as one into one kingdom. What this does is it agitates the enemy. It stirs up evil. And that's exactly what God intends for his kingdom to do. Okay, so the first six verses of chapter 38, and we don't have time to read all these. So you're just going to have to, that's why I say you got to be in your Bibles. Yes. Follow along, skim the passage. If you're looking down, I'm just assuming you're reading your Bible, you know, not falling asleep. Uh, here's what you're going to see. The first six verses of chapter 38 is a, a horrifying picture. Uh, this is some kind of foreign power, it seems, a great army. It's called Gog, in alliance with some other nations that are mentioned in verses 5 and 6. Together, this great army from the uttermost parts of the earth are mustered for battle. A great horde. I like that English word. When I hear the word horde, I can't help but get in my mind one of those terrifying battle scenes in the Lord of the Rings, right? That's the picture in Ezekiel 38. It's a terrifying scene, especially for those who are the target of this mustard army. We see who it is. Verse 8 tells us that Gog and his allies will come. Look what it says. Against the land that is restored from war. The land whose people were gathered from many peoples under the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Now, you're reading through Ezekiel, you know exactly who that is. Because these words are a clear reflection of the promise in the previous chapter. Verses 20, 21 and 22 of chapter 37. So this comes after chapter 37 has been fulfilled. When does Gog and his horde come? In the period of restoration. After the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, just at the moment when Israel, the restored people of God, feels that finally we can breathe, finally we can rejoice, finally there's victory. Just at the moment when God's great prophecy has been fulfilled, precisely then is when Gog and his hordes will come. In other words, just when Israel thinks they are at the end, it's not quite the end. There remains yet an enemy within the kingdom of God, simultaneous with the arrival of God's kingdom. So for anyone then who looks around and sees evil in the world, do you see it? Do you see suffering and evil, trouble, 
in the world. For anyone who does that and then says, well, this has to mean that the kingdom of God has not yet come, just point them, because that's not you, point them to Ezekiel 38. Say, look here. This is exactly what we should expect when the kingdom of God comes. When God inaugurates his kingdom on earth, it stirs up evil. It agitates the enemy. It's in the wake of Ezekiel 37 with all of its good news, with all of its gospel, as you will. We've been, in the last two weeks, celebrating Easter and the celebration of Easter and the, yes, victory, triumph. We've, we've conquered in Jesus. The victory is won. This is when evil shows up. It's when this gospel is still ringing joyfully in our ears that we come to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Honestly, two chapters that seem out of place. I mean, we've seen God's judgment against the nations in previous chapters in Ezekiel. Why does it occur here? These two chapters must have been as puzzling to Ezekiel's audience as they are to so many Christians who have read the puzzling 20th chapter of Revelation, the only other place in the Bible where Gog is mentioned. If it weren't for that reference in Revelation, many Christians would probably just ignore uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. But clearly, John the Revelator is getting his picture of Gog from Ezekiel. So here it is. John is utilizing in Revelation 20, Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we want to understand Revelation 20. We're going to have to do something with these two chapters. Until Gog is defeated, there's still work to be done. But then again, at the same time, it's critical that God's people recognize that the stirring up of Gog, and we'll come to identifying Gog in a moment, is a key sign in Bible prophecy that the kingdom of God has not been put on hold. The kingdom of God didn't fail to take root. No, no. When you see Gog, when you see evil stirred up, this is actually the sign that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated and has come to stay. Gog comes upon Israel, called in verse 11. Look what Israel's called, the land of unwalled villages. And the quiet people, the people who live in a city without walls and having no bars or gates. Gog comes at that time when it seems like you don't have to lock your doors anymore. No reason to put up the security cameras. No reason to be suspicious anymore. And then in verse 14, God says to Gog, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? It's as if Gog waits until just that time when the people of God are confident that there's nothing left to fear, nothing left to harm them, and they've relaxed. It's at that time that Gog will come against God's people at the moment when Gog and God's people both know, both believe that the time of restoration, the time of security has come. And yet, here's the thing. 
There's nothing in this text to say that either God's people or Gog, for that matter, have miscalculated. Israel's security and rest is not presumptuous. God doesn't say you shouldn't, you should have built some walls. You shouldn't be so secure. God doesn't chastise his people here for resting on their laurels, not paying attention. His promise of restoration, after all, as he said, is an eternal promise, an everlasting covenant. So here's the surprise. Gog's attack comes not before the time of Israel's final restoration, but during it. And when we turn to Revelation 20, we find the same sort of thing. The chapter begins by speaking of the imprisonment of Satan for a thousand years, during which time a resurrected people share with Christ in his reign. And then at the end of this thousand years, at the end of this millennium, that's when Gog comes out to battle, surrounds the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So as in Ezekiel, so also in Revelation, the inauguration of the promise to Israel, the arrival of the long-awaited kingdom of God, must not be taken to mean there's no battle left to be fought, but exactly the opposite. Now, God's people today really need to get that message. It would help you and me in our Christian life if we get this right. The fact that the promised kingdom of God, the restoration of Israel described in Ezekiel 37, has arrived, has come in Jesus of Nazareth, does not mean that there is no more battle to be fought. The Bible says this is what we should expect. The arrival of the kingdom of God on earth, as it is in heaven, would be the exact reason for this Gog to be agitated, incited to go to war. So, Christian, do not then look at the trouble around you, nor at the turmoil within you, seeing the signs that something is not quite right, something is out of sorts, and then conclude, well, then the kingdom of God hasn't come. But also, brothers and sisters, do not look at the pleasures around you, nor at the peace within you. See signs of progress and improvement and conclude, well, then the battle is over. If you do that, you will be in for a rude awakening. Instead, here's what we should expect. The arrival of the kingdom of God means both we are secure, we have no reason to fear, we can live in quiet, not because there's nothing left to threaten, but because every threat will go down in defeat. Every suffering will be turned back, undone. Okay, but then who is Gog, right? Who is this foe? What is his identity? And by the way, that is not an easy question to answer. And it's not because there's not been plenty of attempts to do so. 
Who is this foe that Ezekiel identifies as Gog, who is agitated, stirred up at the arrival of the kingdom of God? Okay, well, first, there is no known empire or nation in ancient history that goes by the name Gog. Some commentators contend that the name is derived from a a similar-sounding name of one of the kings of Lydia, which was a kingdom that was established during the time of Ezekiel in Western Asia, Asia Minor. But even if that's where Ezekiel gets his name, the, the name Gog, it just doesn't seem plausible that Ezekiel is re- actually referring to that particular kingdom. Uh, it's not a foreign power that you find him talk about anywhere else in his prophecies. It doesn't seem to be Israel's concern. But the nation that Ezekiel is concerned with, class, is Babylon. And an argument can be made that Gog is a cryptic name for Babylon and its king, Nebuchadnezzar. In Revelation, by the way, support for this is found that in Revelation, we find that Babylon, which is no longer really a threat anymore in the first century, Babylon itself is a cryptic name for the power that was a threat in the day, which was Rome. So it seems that Ezekiel is speaking cryptically. Now, the reality of such cryptograms in the Bible cannot be denied, but let me just give us a little caution here. In the early early 20th century, a popular English study Bible, it's one that I used for years when I was growing up, told us who Gog was. And told us definitively that Gog and his allies refers to the evil alliance headed by Russia. How many of you were told that Gog was Russia? Raise your hand. I'm just curious. Okay, a few of you just like me. That interpretation has had an incalculable effect on Western Christianity when it comes to identifying this foe that we are up against. Don't believe me? You say, that I didn't hear that. Okay, well then, listen to these words spoken by a famous politician at a political speech in 1971. I know, it was a long time ago, but just listen. This is, this is a politician that you, you know the name in 1971, delivered this political speech. Just imagine if this was broadcast today. Here's, here it goes. Quote, Ezekiel tells us, tells us that Gog, the nation that will lead all the other powers of darkness against Israel, will come out of the north. Biblical scholars have been saying for generations that Gog must be Russia. What other powerful nation is to the north of Israel? None. But it didn't seem to make sense before the Russian Revolution when Russia was a Christian country. Now it does make sense. Now that Russia has become communistic and atheistic, now that Russia has set itself against God, now it fits the description of Gog perfectly, end quote. 
Now, when someone as politically significant and impactful as Ronald Reagan makes that kind of assertion, the swords come out. However much of a threat Russia may be to Western interests, identifying Russia as God's final enemy to be overthrown makes us, Americans, look like the good guys, the chosen people. Quite a convenient move for a politician, wouldn't you think? But it's a horrible and deadly move for Christians. Because if we're fighting the wrong foe, we're in trouble. So it's much better for us to resist identifying Gog so concretely. Be wary of anyone who says, let me tell you definitively the power, the nation that is Gog. Gog, in fact, symbolizes God's and his people's archetypal enemy in every generation. That's how John sees Gog in Revelation 20, because he speaks of Satan coming out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, not just to the north, the four corners of the earth, the, the entire globe. And that is whom he identifies in Revelation 27 and 8 as Gog and Magog. In other words, Gog is not identified by his ethnicity, but by his mindset. Gog is those, are those who have been deceived by Satan himself, who have bought into Satan's lies. And since the Bible makes it plain that God has claimed for himself people from every tribe and tongue, from every nation and civilization, it is nothing but demonic deceit that would cause any professing Christian to identify Gog as some particular race or political power. Doing so puts us in danger of falling for Satan's deception and colluding with evil, joining his demonic alliance ourselves. So that's a deadly move to make. We need to resist it. So let me just put it bluntly. I'm afraid of Russia and their allies because I'm an American, not because I'm a Christian. In the same way that I'm afraid of death because I'm a human, not because I'm a Christian. We share, in fact, a common foe with many Russian brothers and sisters. And that is this Satan, this evil, this devil with his fingers deep within our own nation as much as he has his fingers in theirs. So we had better become aware of how this devil, how this Satan works, his deceit, so that we can be aware of who the real enemy is. So Jesus warned his disciples, in the world, you will have tribulation. That's what Jesus said. But that's not because Jesus failed in his mission. It's not because Jesus failed to establish his kingdom. Oh, no, take heart, he hastened to add. I have overcome the world, John 16, And then the very next verse and the entire next chapter in John's gospel, Jesus goes on to pray that all of God's people, 
would live in the unity that he gave his life to establish, that they would be one as, his, as he is one with his Father. So in the wake of God's kingdom being inaugurated on earth, trouble would be stirred up, agitated against God's people, whom he gave his life to unite into an invincible army. But Ezekiel makes it clear that the God of Israel is in control of these troubles. The demonic hordes of Gog, you read 38th chapter, they are mustered by God himself. They come against his people at his bidding. Now that's surprising. As surprising as this might be, however, it makes plain that there is no dualism when it comes to the trouble that God's people will face in the days of his restoration, in the days of his kingdom. The evil we face is not a rival power that's equal to God's own that holds us down in anxiety about I'm not sure who's going to prevail. God's mustering of Gog is critical to our understanding that God has triumphed over all enemies. There is no equal, there is no power that's equal to his own. So then I want us to notice here lastly, the overthrow of our foe. At the end of chapter 38, verses 18 to 23, God predicts that he will act unilaterally to overthrow Gog. His wrath will be roused, he says, against them. And in his jealousy for his people, he will rise to their defense. Chapter 39 continues to speak of God's decisive victory. He will overthrow Gog by his own power. It's it's as if his people will not even have to lift their sword in battle. And when you turn to Revelation 20, you find the, the same thing. Satan's hordes come up against the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Revelation 20, verse 9 says, And then the picture John has is fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. That's how it ends. We can't really get much more specific than to say that God himself unilaterally will put an end to all evil, to all pain, to all suffering that comes from that evil. The ultimate overthrow of all that comes against you, Christian, will be by God's decisive hand. You don't have to overcome it. God will overcome it because he already has. Now, how can we be so sure? Some of you find yourself struggling to believe in the reality of Easter and the arrival of the kingdom of God precisely because you feel as if the battle is undecided. The suffering you encounter, you experience, is so overwhelming. It's like, you, how could I ever get out? How can we be so sure that we will, in fact, be victorious in Christ? 
Well, because is this not exactly what happened to our Lord? When evil was agitated, stirred up with the coming of Jesus. And by the way, when you read your gospel, when you read the gospels, that's what you see, right? You see literally demonic spirits, agitation. We know why you're here. We know what you've come to do. And so when evil was consolidated, when the hordes of hell gathered together and were mustered on Good Friday and then unleashed on the man hanging on Calvary's cross, Jesus did not have to fight. Theologians will call it the the passive obedience of Christ. It's not because he wasn't there. It was because of what he was suffering. What he had to do, of course, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was to what? Entrust himself into his father's hand. You say, well, yeah, Ben, that didn't turn out so well for him, right? He died. How is that so assuring? And it wouldn't be, of course. It wouldn't be if it weren't for the empty tomb. If it were not for Easter Sunday, his death, his loss, just as God predicted, would be precisely turned into his vindication, into his victory. And if you and I want to share in his victory, then we are called to walk a similar path. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you have to pick up your cross. And follow me. This is not us giving in to evil. It is, in fact, the most revolutionary way to overthrow it. Why? Why is that the way to overthrow evil? Because, because this power that we see in Jesus on Good Friday of a non-anxious presence... Enduring the suffering in the midst of trouble is the way that he doesn't simply overpower evil, but exhausts it. This is what, of course, it would require then for you and for me. A non-anxious presence in the midst of the kingdom of God. Not building walls, not building up the protection as if we don't really know that we're victorious in Christ, but neither a withdrawal from the trouble or or trying to stay out of every place where we see evil, but precisely living in it because we know that in Christ we have this power. When we get to the passage that we read this morning at the end of chapter 39, if you'll look there with me, in verses 21 to 24, God rehearses these two realities of our redemption. First, verses 21 to 24, he speaks of the glory that he will have among the nations when they see his judgment that he has executed, his hand that he has laid on his own people. Verse 22, the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. 
because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. We will know that God accomplished his victory in us by dealing with our evil and our exile justly in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. You got that. You know that story. That's basic to the gospel message. But then Ezekiel goes on. In verses 25 to 29, he describes that the world will know. Those who have not yet been brought into this kingdom of God, those who do not yet believe, the world will know that God has accomplished his victory through us when he deals with its evil in us just as he does, did it with his Messiah. God extinguishes evil by engulfing evil. Fire comes down from heaven, he says. As he does with Jesus, so he does with his people. He calls us into broken places, just like he did with his own son, precisely to demonstrate the overpowering victory of his love. And that's why he calls us to walk the same type of path. He calls us into dark places, not because the victory hasn't been won, but precisely because it has been won. It's who you are in Christ. We sang these songs this morning. We've sang them before. By the way, Kendall, where's Kendall? Kendall joined the team singing for us. I don't know where she is. There she's hiding back there. Thank you, sister, for helping us say that. And we sing these songs today about suffering, and some of you are in the midst of it. You're praying those kinds of prayers. You're singing those kinds of songs, and you're wondering, what is God doing? What in the world is God up to? Ezekiel has prepared us for this. Christian, be prepared for this. In your suffering, just as in the Messiah's suffering for you and for your salvation, God is intending to bring his salvation to the world, to the nations. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. And in the end, the fire from heaven will come down and engulf the fires of evil. And in his victory, we will stand triumphant. That is his promise it's assured to us in Jesus of Nazareth. Let us pray together. Now, Father in heaven, we ask you by your grace to keep our minds cast to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. If we can see what the Messiah did to restore his people, that we can begin to get an understanding the suffering you call us into as your redeemed and restored people is precisely the extension of your love to more people. What Christ suffered definitively for all who would be a part of God's kingdom, we are called in some way to partake in so that evil will be banished from his kingdom once and for all. The victory, of course, is unilateral. It is God's work. But he vindicates his holiness through.
through us, through us. So I want to pray this morning for my brothers and sisters who right now feel themselves under an enormous weight. And I know it's many. And the evil one for sure wants them to lose hope. To not trust in the one who has been victorious for all. I ask you by your grace to sustain them. This is not a surprise. All of us will face tribulation in this world, at the very least, the drawing of our final breath. Why? It's not because the kingdom of God did not come, but precisely because it did come. And in the arrival of God's kingdom, his plan, his purpose is for this good news of love and of salvation to fill the earth. To fill the earth. So you call us as imitators of Jesus, as Christians, to walk a similar path. You lead us strangely at times, surprisingly, into dark valleys, shadows of death, the psalmist calls it. But we don't have to fear evil because you have already established an everlasting covenant. Your sanctuary is in our midst. You will be with us forever. And you're going to lead us through those dark valleys and into green pastures. How do we know? We look to Calvary. We look to Easter Sunday. We remember Christ. We participate in his body and his blood shed for us. So, O oh God, come now by your Holy Spirit and do your work. Remind us who we are in Christ and assure us that the foe has already been overthrown. And in Christ, we are victorious, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.